You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal and I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, regular listeners of the show, uh, both of you, will, will know that we have uh, been sort of up and down over the past few years. Uh, since the departure of, of Ed's song, uh, we've been kind of... Uh, moving around and trying to feel out what's going on in the world and, and what direction the show should go. And I've, I've been thinking to myself, we really need someone who is uh, deeply in touch with young people these days, who, who has his thumb firmly on the jugular of pop culture and is just pushing down hard. I thought we need Nathan Gilmore. So uh, joining us today on the show and uh, potentially every show here on out or, or many of them here on out, uh, Nathan Gilmore, uh, Dr. Nathan Gilmore, uh, teaches English at uh, North Gwinnett High School in Atlanta, Georgia. Did I get all of that right, Nathan? Yeah, it's actually a Sewanee, Georgia, which is one of the uh, suburbs, but it's pretty much Atlanta if you're driving in the traffic. So Fair we'll enough. roll with it. Well, uh, this uh, this was this was your pitch uh, for uh, for the, the episode topic today. Uh you, uh, you gave me a list of them, and I was like, well, this is the one that I, I despise least on this list. So uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let you lead us off. Uh, you wanna, uh, do you want to start by sort of telling us where the network's at? Uh, I, I honestly yeah, have yeah. no idea. So the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, those of you who have been with us for several years will know this. Uh, you know, sometime during the pandemic, um, I had to take a hiatus from the Christian Humanist podcast. And, uh, you know, since then... Uh, there's been a handful of episodes, but, you know, never a constant stream here in the last year, because of some, uh, professional reasons, uh, the Christian humanist podcast did have to discontinue and also put the archive behind a paywall, not a paywall. Wow. Behind a password. Uh, so if any of you listeners do want to listen to old episodes of the Christian humanist podcast, there probably won't be any new ones. Uh, but if you want to listen to the old ones, you can email, uh, Michael Farmer, and he will give you that password. Uh, if you email me, uh, I will have to email Michael and get that password, and that's also fine. Uh, but the Christian Feminist Podcast uh, really never slowed down. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, our interview show, has been going on in fits and starts. And, you know, as Coyle said, uh, he and I were uh, in conversation online one day, and, you know, he just kind of floated the idea, you know, would you want to come over and... Uh, jump on Ed Song's microphone and see if we can get the City of Man going again. I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. So here we are. So our first one uh, here as we you know start into another general election year uh, is going to be something about partisan realignment. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you know, and this will be a little bit lengthy, listeners, so do forgive. But, I mean, I remember reading, because I was born in 77, that in the mid to late 20th century, uh, you know, the parties really were reacting to the civil rights movement, Vietnam, the sexual revolution, uh, you know, different kinds of, you know, engagements with the Soviet Union and the Cold War more broadly. And, you know, sometime there in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, you got something 
basically recognizable as a, you know, McGovern flavored progressive party uh, that, you know, emerges in the late 60s and the 1970s that, you know, comes to characterize the DNC. And then a broadly, you know, Barry Goldwater flavored conservatism uh, that, you know, really doesn't characterize the party's core until, you know, Reagan comes along, but is still recognizable there in the Republican Party. And then, you know, in the late 80s, um, this part, you know, I kind of do remember. Uh, I remember people in my circles who were, you know, kind of big union people kind of getting irritated that the Democratic Party had abandoned unions and that people like Gary Hart and Bill Clinton uh, were, you know, more interested in corporations than they were in unions. And, you know, at the same time, and I got this, you know, largely from um, Charlie Camozzi's books, uh, who's been, you know, Coyle, you and I both interviewed Charlie, uh, yeah. that, you know, the Democratic Party became more and more insistent and more and more dogmatic on pro-choice politics so that that became, you know, if not the central issue for the DNC, at least one from which one could not diverge and still be a national figure within the party. And then, of course, you know, the Iraq War happens about 20 years ago, and, you know, the Republicans uh, really become, you know, much more, I'm going to say, openly and aggressively internationalist. Uh, you know, the project of, you know, becoming the, the voice of democracy, not just uh, diplomatically, but also, you know, militarily, uh, comes to characterize the GOP. And, you know, as a reaction to that, it seemed like, you know, the DNC you know, which used to be the party of John F. Kennedy and, you know, uh, a very, I'm, I'm going to say a very active internationalism, you know, becomes more and more anti-war and as a result, more and more suspicious of intervention of any kind in other nations. And then, you know, within the last decade, and I'll, I'll call it a decade, um, you know, you get a shift within the Republican Party from what I think of as kind of the Tea Party, which is kind of the last intensification of Reaganism into something wildly different uh, as, you know, Donald Trump, you know, starts to rally people who really weren't that involved in electoral politics. And, you know, you start hearing people talk about a right wing populism in the GOP and in America more broadly. And it seems like as a response to that, uh, you know, the DNC uh, kind of starts fighting with itself in ways that, you know, the Repu Republican Party is fighting with itself, except that, you know, instead of Reaganism and Trumpism, you get something like um, academic leftism versus technocratic capitalism and, you know, sometimes blending the two. So here's, here's honestly, I mean, why I wanted to ask Coyle about this, because Coyle uh, actually knows stuff and I just have a lot of questions and, uh, you know, what I'd like to know is, I mean, you know, um, what kinds of things, you know, am I overemphasizing in that story? What kinds of things am I underplaying in that story? What kinds of things have I completely missed in that story of how the Democrats and Republicans have been shifting here in the last, well, I mean, here in your lifetime and in mine, Coyle? Yeah, so I, I know some stuff, but not as much about this as I probably should as a political scientist. Uh uh, this is uh, partisan uh, partisanship and polarization, not my area of expertise. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, I know. Uh, so yes, I, I mean, sort of yes to everything you said, uh, with with all requisite caveats thrown in. So the uh, the internationalism <laughs> of Republicans under George W. Bush, 
it, it can be hard to remember, and this is this is just when I was starting to pay attention to politics, but it can be hard mm-hmm. to remember George W. Bush did not campaign as an internationalist. Uh, he yes, campaigned as right. a, yeah. you know, let's, we're not the world's police, let's start maybe shuttering those World War II era bases in Germany and maybe even Korea. Uh, I mean, let's, oh, let's bring right, the troops home. Right. Uh, and then September 11th happens, and you know, right, uh, uh, a radical turn on on his part, uh, away from that, and back to back to an amped up version of where Republicans had been during the Cold War, right? So there's there's mm-hmm. always the anti-communism that equals kind of international engagement on on the right, uh, and there's always that on the, on the left also. So there there are plenty of uh, uh, left wing anti-communists. Uh, uh, teaming up with the left-wing communists out there uh, to, uh, uh, to to work together in, in one big party. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there, there there's some nuance there, uh, uh, and the same thing with the the populism that you mentioned of, of Donald Trump. Uh, there has historically been a streak of populism uh, in the Republican Party. I mean, Reagan, uh, what was he if not a populist, right? I, I mean, he was he was other things too, uh, but certainly there's there's popular appeal on his side, and there's a, there's a historic streak of that in the on the on the left also, right? Bernie Sanders, uh, in in the last few years, runs as a as a left wing populist. Uh, and we can sort of trace that back and look at people like William Jennings Bryan, right, running as the, oh, the sure, populist sure. on the on the left. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and there's 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 lots of nuance that that needs to be included there. Uh, I, I think uh, I think one of the things that gets tricky is trying to figure out whether the the partisanship is driving it, it, how how much the partisanship is driving all of these changes. Like, are are parties adopting this not because they're deeply committed internationalists or techno capitalists or or whatever, but just because they think they can win more elections that way, and then the the people mm-hmm. sort of fall in line, uh, or are the parties reading what's already out there and adapting accordingly? And I honestly have no idea. I I would not claim to answer that particular question. Uh, I think it's probably both. But again, trying to trying to navigate. Uh, how much are they following the culture, and how much are they shaping the culture? Man, I, I have no idea. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think another factor that has to be considered here, so uh, speaking of that sort of cultural question, uh, as the parties have been reformed in the last 10 to 20 to however many years, that's not unrelated to the geographic sorting that's gone on in the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, over the last 40 years, uh, we, we have the, the easy narrative of red states are getting redder and blue states are getting bluer. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not because we're reproducing uh, and, and the population is growing in that sense, but because people are moving around. Uh, and we've seen this accelerate in the post-COVID era, right? Now that everyone can work from home, uh, at least part-time, you, you no longer need to live within easy commuting distance of your job. Uh, so people are, are further accelerating the, the geographic separation. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's going to be one big feature. That's also kind of a false narrative. Uh, it, it 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 implies looking at the uh, uh, the election map and saying, well, gosh, look at all those red states and look at all those blue states, uh, and look at how more deeply red the red states have become and how how more deeply how much more deeply blue the blue states have become. But then you also have the uh, the complexity of there are also more purple states today than there were 20 right. years ago. Right. So. Uh, you know, we, we remember the, the 2004 uh, election, the 2008 election, uh, where one of the common complaints about the Electoral College was, isn't it terrible that this all comes down to Ohio, Florida, and Arizona, right? The, the and entire election. And Pennsylvania. And, uh, in 2004 and 2008, though? Uh, okay, I'm thinking of 2000. So, so maybe maybe Indiana, right? Indiana's in there. Yeah, 2000 Pennsylvania might have been up in the air also. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, no, in, in Indiana, I mean... 
in, in a weird twist, it went for Obama in 08, but I mean, other than yep. that, it's one of the most Republican places I've ever been. Yep. So again, it, it's, uh, there, there's, there's this, this claim that's made in the early, early part of the 21st century, uh, that the electoral college is terrible because it puts the weight of the election on these two or three states. And, and what we've seen, especially in the past two elections, uh, is the number of states that affect the electoral college has grown a lot, and, and including states right. that we never would have thought of. So maybe Florida is not on that list anymore. Uh, maybe Indiana is not on that list anymore. Uh, but Ohio still is, uh, and mm-hmm. Arizona still is, and uh, uh, now North Carolina and Virginia uh, and uh, Georgia, uh, so we have some some kind of deep southern states there. New Hampshire is up in the air. Uh, it's never quite sure which way it's going to go, so there's a New England representation. The Rust Belt, um, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan and Pennsylvania are, are all questionable. Uh, this this kind of falls through the cracks, but in 2016, uh, Minnesota was within two percentage points of going for Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, huh. uh, a very, very slight shift would have nudged Minnesota towards uh, towards the red. Uh uh, uh, Arizona uh, in the southwest uh, is still a swing state. New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Montana uh, is a is a purpling state uh, as uh, uh. as it, it moves in that direction. So it has a uh, I don't know if they still have a Democratic governor. They they did up until 2020. I don't know if they still do, uh, but they still have a Democratic senator. So mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. the, the uh, well, well it's more complicated. Me, yeah, this is partly just a function of where I live, but you know the the pair of states that that just makes me scratch my head is Florida and Georgia. Yeah, uh, because I mean, you know, Florida went for DeSantis by what twenty points this last go round. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, and and yet Georgia is you know turning purple, election by election, and you know I mean it seems like the same New Yorkers and New Jersey people are moving to both states. Yeah. So I've got no idea why. <laughs> uh, you know, right. the 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 great sort is happening. You know, precisely there at the uh, Georgia Florida line. Well, and that that's a. Uh, uh... That's also where, uh, within states, we are seeing more of that great sort, right? So to, to, to right, further right. add to the nuance, right, uh, uh, communities in states are getting redder and bluer, even if the state is going purple. So Atlanta is getting sure. bluer, rural Georgia is getting redder. Uh, uh-huh. And some of that's gerrymandering, and some of that's just the natural way people move. Uh, some of that's populations dying off, uh, aging out, uh, and, and so mm-hmm. on. So, yeah, all all of this is super complicated, and and you know, I've, I think I've said everything I know about that. So uh, we're yeah, we're at the you, edge of my you. expertise well, there. Uh, and you know, I mean, and, and again, this is very personal for me because you know, for 20 years, and you know, I've lived in Georgia for just over 20 years. Uh, you know, I, I joked that you know, Georgia is in a running contest with Indiana to be the most Republican place on the planet, uh, and yet, you know, the county where I teach, Gwinnett County. Um, you know, because during COVID, you know, all of these people from New York, New Jersey, East Coast states who wanted to get their kids back in school buildings all moved to the, you know, Georgia and Florida, and all of them that landed in Georgia landed in Gwinnett County, seemingly. Uh, You know, our school board, uh, in a development that I never could have predicted, uh, took a major leftward swing in the last election cycle. So, you know, I mean... We went from, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, being indistinguishable from Florida as far as our educational policies going until now. I mean, you know, we've got policies that, uh, you know, National Review people complain about in our school system. So, you know, it's a it's just a bizarre um, moment. And I guess every moment is bizarre if you're living through it. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know just strikes me as weird. Now, 
what's interesting, and you know, one of the questions that I wanted to pose to you, Coyle, is, you know, I mean, in those geographic sorts, um, you know, what kind of relationship is there, if there is a relationship, between the shifting geographic centers of Republican and Democrat power on one hand, and the content of their I won't even call it platforms because, of course, you know, the GOP abandoned platforms in 2020. Yeah. Uh, but in the content of their policies on the other, right? So, I mean, you know, it seems like, um, you know, the, the sort of Clinton technocratic DNC is still the recognizable core of democratic politics. But like you said, you know, you've also got, you know, this uh, Bernie Sanders wing and you've also got this strong identity politics wing. Uh, and it seems like those are developments that at least have gotten stronger in the last 10 years, even if they were present, you know, as kind of latent before that. So, I mean, you know, do the does the geography or I shouldn't ask it as, as a coin toss. To what extent, you know, does the geography, you know, drive the changing ideas and to what extent do, do the changing ideas drive the geography? So in, in good political scientist mode, I'm going to dodge that question uh, awesome. because that that implies that either side currently has a policy, and as okay. as far as I can okay. tell, they they just don't. Uh, the 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 Democrats, yeah, they're the sort of Hillary Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton era holdouts have some policies that they support, uh, and in in as far as that goes, they because they have some kind of policy, I think they end up being the the default. Uh, I don't know that the, uh, the the younger crowd of Democrats have you know clear realistic policies. I mean, I, I know the Green New Deal was under discussion for a while, but mm -hmm. that was that was uh, at best a joke, uh, and at, at uh, well at best it was a, it was a tool to get votes. Uh, but uh, you know it was it was really kind of a, I don't know what it was beyond that. It wasn't serious policy proposals. Like it wasn't actually a here let's do this because this could happen in the real world. We're not going to redesign every building in America, right? I mean it, it's mm -hmm. not. Uh, it's not something that a serious politician is is concerned with, uh, or at least it's not something that a, a serious uh, legislator is concerned with. Um, serious politician, of course, has to win votes, so maybe maybe they are. Uh, same thing on the Republican side, right? Uh, own the libs is not a policy, right? Uh, right. And and we we saw this with uh, with the when the Republicans took the House in 2016 uh, and decided to take on Obamacare, right? It's it's mm -hmm. fine that you don't like Obamacare, but you actively need something positive to put in its place. Right. right. Even even if it's just a hey, you states figure this out. That's still something positive, but they didn't have that. Uh, so the whole thing floundered and fell apart because there was no mm -hmm. no positive policy core that the party could gather around. And and once they jettisoned the platform, there's no way to even write a policy. Uh, saying mm -hmm. that Donald Trump is our platform is not something that you can turn into meaningful legislation. Uh, right. In the same way, saying that you know uh, uh, equity and justice uh, on the Democratic side of things is our platform. Those are those are fine things to value, but those are not policies. Those, those are not things mm -hmm. that you can turn into real world action. Uh, you need you need something that stands between a desire for justice and a real world law uh, that are that bridges that gap. And so far, I haven't seen much of that from the Democrats, which is why they've uh, they're in sort of the same position that uh, that Donald Trump was in uh, from 2016 to 2019. Uh, where they have one party control over government and they've they've utterly botched it uh, up until the Republicans right. took the house right uh, uh, why why didn't they get anything done well because they don't believe in anything uh, there, there's nothing right, that they, right. they hold on to so that probably is reflective of the geography right what is it that Americans believe these days well 
we don't believe much, right? Uh, we uh, mm-hmm. uh, there there's a sort of hollowness to American citizenship that uh, has not yet been filled with anything other than anger at the other side. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's the that's the sort of thing that binds us all together on each side of the political spectrum, uh, and that's that's not a great place to be in a in a free society. Right, right, and and you know what's interesting. I mean, and again, all all kinds of stuff here is interesting. This is one of the reasons I I jumped at the chance to jump on this show because I I finally get to talk to someone other than my uh, car stereo about these things. Uh, but uh, you know, turn off the, the talk radio, Nathan. Turn off the <laughs> talk radio. <laughs> one of the things that you know strikes me interesting is that you know we had these. Well, I mean, l- let me back up. We've got, you know, as far as I can see, you know, three kinds of centralizing impulses at the federal level, right? I mean, we've got an increasingly powerful Supreme Court that, you know, was the best thing ever uh, if you listen to certain circles right up till about 2015. And then it became the best thing ever if you listen to other circles after about, you know, 2020. And, you know, and then we also had, you know, the increasing centralization of the presidential power. So that, you know, um, presidents would openly say that, you know, if Congress won't do anything, I will. Right. Yep. And then, you know, within Congress, I mean, you know, what I found fascinating is a parallel to those two, even as you're right. I mean, Congress does less and less. Um, you still have this desire. Uh, and it seems like both parties desire this to have these very powerful you know, Gingrich, Pelosi kinds of characters who can basically enforce party discipline and basically, you know, act as a third president, if you will, uh, you know, after the chief justice and the uh, actual person in the White House. So, I mean, you know, again, you know, populism seems like, uh, you know, it would be averse to that kind of thing, although I know that historically whenever populism happens, uh, and of course Plato predicts this in Republic. <laughs> yep. You know, when, when you get too uh, democratic in the broad sense, uh, you know, the rise of a singular tyrant usually falls pretty close on its heels. But I, I, there is a question in here, I promise. But, you know, when we're talking about, you know, those powerful centralizing impulses, uh, you know, again, I'm going to ask extent questions. I mean, to what extent is that something that, you know, originates inside Washington and then everyone else goes along with it because the media apparatus, you know, tells us that that's the way it is. And to what extent, I mean, you know, are the voting public inclined to, you know, for lack of a better term, I mean, you know, throw all their chips into one card, hand of cards, you know, and say, okay, if we get the president, we win. And if we don't get the president, the world ends. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously that, that centralizing thing is just in the nature of government. You, you will, you will never get away from that. That's, that's what government does. And that's, that is not an observation unique to me that that's just Hobbes and Locke sort of distilled down into a, into one mm-hmm. line there. Uh, so government by its nature expands, centralizes and grows. Right? That's, that's, that's what, mm-hmm. what, what's going to happen. Um, the Supreme Court is, is interesting. And like you said, there's a, there's a partisan component to our understanding of it. Uh, I think uh, the Roberts Court, uh, much to the chagrin of kind of everyone who, you know, depending on your political orientation, has a fairly solid track record of saying, "Yeah, we're we're not dealing with this. We're uh, we're kicking this back to the states." 
right, so right. They, they have to have sufficient power to do that, right? So there's a, there there is a there is a centralization implied in the ability to say, "Hey, you states, figure out your abortion policy," uh, right, and expect right. uh, Congress and the president to fall in line with that, uh, and expect mm-hmm. state governments to. I mean, state governments, I guess, don't really have much of a say. I mean, what are they going to do? Say no, we're not. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's not going to happen. Um, but there, there's a, there needs to be an order within the court uh, that that uh, allows that kind of a decision to be made in any meaningful way, uh, and the same thing with uh, with what we've seen with some of the election decisions, uh, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't, just depending on which mm-hmm. decision you're talking about. Uh, but there's a, there's a there's an intentional decentralization that seems to be the pattern, uh, which is which is interesting, and I, I don't want to go too far down the Supreme Court rabbit trail. Uh, the the sort of one factor that unites as far as i know all of the supreme court justices and if some listener knows that this is not true of one of them mm-hmm. please let me know but basically every supreme court justice who's been nominated since the uh, the 1980s maybe even going back farther the the one thing that ties them all together is that they have tended to uphold executive power right regardless of right. which side they're on like regardless of uh whether they are uh uh you know conservative or liberal republican democrat and originalist living constitutionalist whatever that's sort of the the one thing that ties them all together mm-hmm. uh so uh uh it's interesting that they are now not doing that uh now now that the the court is uh now that the the court is under uh, under john roberts um so I'll, yeah anyway like i said i don't want to go too far down that uh congress uh Again, it's it's hard to talk about Congress as centralizing when it's such a chaotic mess. Um, well, right now it is, but I mean, I remember, I mean, you know, people being very impressed. And again, what people praise and what people blame interests me. Sure. And what what they praised Newt Gingrich for, even people who despised his policy, yeah, uh, was the fact that he could basically wield control over the entire National Republican Party. And what people praised Pelosi for, even if they despised her policy was that she could enforce party discipline on Democrats, I mean, up to the point where she couldn't. Right. Yeah, and, and it's... Uh, so the, the Speaker of the House has always, or not always, but, but since, since Henry Clay, since the beginning of the 19th century, uh, has had that kind of authority within the House of Representatives. They haven't always used it, but they, they've always had that. Um, mm-hmm. what, what has changed, at least uh, since the 90s, and this is kind of Gingrich's... This was Gingrich's baby. I don't know that he came up with it. Uh, the, the two things he introduces, uh, on the one hand, uh, he he introduces the idea of the nationalization of elections. Yeah. So, uh, and this, again, whether he comes up with this or just, just perfects it, I don't know. Uh, but he, he is the guy who convinces the Republican Party to go out and campaign across the board against Bill Clinton. So if you're if you're running for mayor in, you know, small town, rural Wisconsin, your your campaign platform as a Republican is let's let's stop the Democrats. Let's stop the liberals. They're going to wreck this country. They hate America, blah, blah, blah. So vote for me for mayor mm-hmm. uh, and uh, encourage people not to think, well, I'm just running for mayor. What the heck does that have to do with Bill Clinton and you know being president right, of the United States? Right, right. Right, uh, and uh, uh, it works. It, the, the the red wave in in 1996, uh, mm-hmm. uh, starting kind of in, in uh, rumbles of that in 94, but really in in 96, uh, it, it works. Bill Clinton wins the presidency uh, and does not manage to take back Congress. So mm-hmm. I, I I think I think I've got my years right there. Uh, so uh, that's that's one contribution he makes, and and that obviously contributes to polarization. Right, that that begins mm-hmm. to undo any conservatives you have in the Democratic Party and any liberals you have in the Republican Party, well, now they are speaking at, uh, against general Republican policy, 
uh, and it starts to drive out the, those people who in the past would have created a middle ground in each party. Right, uh, right. So that that's that's one legacy of New Gingrich. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, the other, and this this does predate him a little bit. It doesn't it doesn't start with Gingrich. Uh, is uh, the stripping of co- uh, the power of committees. So within Congress, the way you get things done is is uh, the way you got things done up until the the 90s was being on committees. Uh, committee chairs had a lot of power. They could stop legislation. They could amend legislation. Uh, they had a fairly solid practice of making sure that each party had some representation on the committees. That that practice has continued, but meaningful work was going on in committees. So the fact that each party has a voice in the room means that there's some kind of back and forth, some kind of negotiation. Uh, and the, the end result is generally okay-ish legislation, legislation mm-hmm. that, that does a good job of governing the country. Well, because we are in part because we are now electing people based on a national platform rather than based on local and, and regional preferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, committees are, are no longer safe. You, you can't guarantee the results of what goes on in there. Uh, so first Republicans and then Democrats and then Republicans again and, and so on start to strip committees of any sort of meaningful power. Uh, but all of that work still has to be done. Right, you you still have to you still have to pass your legislation. You still have to have some kind of hammering out. Uh, so it just moves from the committee room, uh, behind closed doors, into the party apparatus, uh, the the party structure. This is very hard for for my students to get a grasp on. Sometimes uh, there is a a an institutional structure with the speaker of the house at the head, committee chairs, mm-hmm. majority leader, minority leader on the the house side, and then Senate majority leader minority leader on the, on the Senate side. There's also a separate party apparatus uh, in each chamber. So there's Republican leadership, Democratic liber- leadership in the House, Republican leadership, Democratic leadership in the Senate. That's really where your your legislation goes on these days. Uh, it's, it's not going to be on C-SPAN. It's going to be party leaders getting together and talking things over uh, and trying to find a way to compromise. Uh, that's uh, that's that's not the way the institution is designed to work, uh, right. and it just tends to uh, to drive the parties farther apart. Because of course we see the grandstanding in committees that doesn't matter, uh, and that affects and shapes us. Uh, in so much as anyone pays any attention to Congress, that that affects mm. and shapes us. Uh, we don't see the uh, the behind the scenes stuff going on with the parties because it's behind the scenes, so we're we're not going to, uh, and that is that is now broken down. Right, the, mm-hmm. the the ability to use that to get legislation done is 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 uh, obviously not functioning, uh, and that leaves Congress in, in this giant chaotic mess. And I think I've lost your original uh, your original question. No, I'm, that's I'm all right because I mean you, you are you are I mean talking about the kinds of things that that are kind of building up to the next big question that I've got is, I mean this centralization you know both in the nationalization of, you know the uh, House of Representatives campaigns. And in the, you know, increasing response of the White House to say that, you know, since Congress doesn't do anything, I will. Right. And then, you know, the court's, you know, tendency. And again, and again I, I, I take your point, and it's a very valid point, that um, the court can either say we're going to decree on this and everyone must follow it, or we're going to withdraw judicial um, overlordship here. <laughs> Right. And the states are going to do this, right? And those are two very different impulses. Uh, but they get reported, both of those kinds of moves, as nationali- nationalizing sure. of politics, right? Sure. Uh, even though it ain't true. Uh, but I mean, uh, it's, it, there is there is some truth to it, right? We, we don't. And, and uh, I will I will say one more thing in defense of the courts. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court hears like if if nothing else, 
uh, their nationalization is less relevant, even even when it goes places that I, I don't care for. Uh, it's less relevant because they do so much less than the other branches of government. Right. Uh, right. They'll they'll hear between sixty and eighty cases a year, uh, mm -hmm. most of which are unanimously decided. Like the vast majority of those are are unanimous decisions. They are they are complicated and they're important to the people involved. But you and I will never see or hear about them because they're right. they're unanimous. Right. Uh, so, you know, 60 to 80 actions a year is pretty minor compared to the, the hundreds of laws that Congress uh, passes or should be passing. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, all <laughs> of the executive actions that the president takes. So the, the sure, footprint sure. of the Supreme Court is is small, even when it's uh, even when it's uh, even when it's active. So right. sorry. To and, and, I, and I guess the hypothesis I'm building towards is, I mean, you know, do these dynamics that we've been talking about? I mean, you know, my hypothesis is they build towards a historical moment and a political moment where something like a Bernie Sanders menace in the DNC is possible and a Trump takeover of the GOP is possible, right? I mean, if you've actually got decentralized representation, uh, I mean, to use your phrase, I mean, the way that the institutions are designed, uh, you know, it becomes much harder for a single individual who's good in front of a camera to completely uh, and radically uh, overhaul, you know, the, if, if we won't say the policy, at least we'll say the personality of one of the major parties. I mean, is that, is that a dynamic that makes sense? Yeah. And, and up until, you know, the past couple of years, uh, and, and I really do mean sort of 2020 ish, maybe, maybe even 2022, mm -hmm. uh, the, the work, and I'm, I'm talking mainly about Congress now, right? The, the work that needs to be done was still getting done because sort of everyone recognized that there was work that needed to be done, and there there were a largest number, I, I don't have a number in front of me, but there were a chunk of people who were still sort of the responsible adults in the room that the rest mm -hmm. of the legislature trusted to do the work that needed to be done. Uh, and when those important bill, bills came up, they would just vote on them. So uh, Paul Ryan is actually a great example of this. Uh, Paul right, Ryan right. was a chair of... Uh, I forget what one of the finance committees or whatever the the big finance committee is. Is it the uh, Ways and, and Means? I don't I don't remember. Oh, okay. Uh, okay which, which, whichever oh, one it was. Uh, <laughs> he was he was the chair of one of the big finance committees in in the early two thousands. Uh, that chair that that specific position had term limits built in on it uh, because they they didn't want anyone to have that much control. And Ryan was popular enough and enough of a workhorse that both parties agreed to remove the term limits so that he could stay in it. Right, uh, uh, and again, it's the sort of thing that you and I would never ever know about if uh, if he hadn't gone on to be vice presidential candidate uh, and right, then, uh, and then right. speaker of the house. Right, uh, so uh, uh, there there were people like that who were doing their jobs kind of quietly and well in the background, uh, and got you know effective government could go on, and all of the congressmen knew who they were, even if you know I couldn't name one other than Paul Ryan. Uh, well, now all of those people are dying off or quitting in disgust. Uh, or occasionally getting primaried and losing their elections. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we are increasingly uh, under the authority of a Congress who doesn't know how to do that work, uh, who doesn't care to learn how to do that work. Uh, I don't know how many congressmen there are that uh, that have communications staff but don't have legislative staff. So they have people whose job it is to speak to the, the nation, to put out tweets and to put posts on Facebook or X's. Are we calling them X's now? I don't know what the word is for Twitter. Yeah, I, 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 I deleted mine years ago, and I've never uh, read it. Well, whatever it is, they're, they're doing that. They don't have anyone who's there to, to write laws or, or to read mm -hmm. laws that are being proposed. Uh, again, I don't I don't know what that number of congressmen is, but I know it's not zero, uh, and that should right, be deeply right. disturbing to, uh, to to every American, but especially to the people in their districts. 
So, yeah, uh, uh, there's a. Well, again, I, I think I think I've lost your original question. I'm sorry. No, uh, that's all right. So, I mean, you know, what what strikes me about 2016, right? And I mean, to draw back there for just a moment, uh, right. is that there was not one, but there were two figures uh, who in let's say the 1990s, just because that's when you and I were, you know, kind of coming into voting age, becoming aware right. of, you know, national and local politics, they would not have been serious figures within the party, right? They might have gotten elected, but they would have been the crazy congressman who, yep. you know, votes with the party and then, you know, says goofy things on C-SPAN, right? Yep. These guys took their parties over. And I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to go out on a limb here and, you know, you can tell me I'm crazy. I've... Certainly, you wouldn't be the first. You won't be the last. <laughs> I feel like Bernie Sanders had the locomotive momentum going in 2016 to win the nomination without superdelegates. So, um, I mean, you know, maybe. You, but the point is, it was close enough that people were worried, right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, what strikes me is that, I mean, you know, something had to change in surrounding conditions for figures like that to basically reinvent their political parties functionally overnight well and if if uh yeah so 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 yes and uh if uh go, go i think i think i'm wrong about sanders <laughs> no i think you're right um would bernie have or at least i will say i don't know would bernie have won without the basically the entire apparatus of the democratic party putting their thumb on the scales against him uh, not just the superdelegates the party itself was working against oh i know him. i know but superdelegates are just what's visible uh, I don't most, know. Most it's, visible, it's, most it is entirely possible. Um, now, would he have won the general election against Trump? There, there's enough overlap between their their two bases that I don't know. Okay, yeah, uh, and, and, and I didn't even get that far in my imagination. No, 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 I, I was just imagining a scenario where two people who are unrecognizable, you know, when you set them next to, yeah. for instance, you know, Kerry and Bush in 2004, could have been, I mean, there's there's real scenarios where they could have been the only two viable presidential nominees. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's no doubt in, if Bernie Sanders were, you know, a, a single generation younger, he would have been a college professor in the 90s instead of a, a yeah. presidential candidate. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and, and certainly his, I mean, his main impact on, on the uh, the Democratic Party was getting rid of the, the power of the superdelegates, yep. uh, which was a terrible idea as far as i'm concerned but that's that's maybe a different conversation that was that was the one thing that prevented bernie sanders and you uh -huh. know, they got rid of it uh so who who knows uh they had biden as sort of their safe candidate in 2020 but in 2028 2028 all bets are off like it, it's going to right. uh, uh it is going to look like the uh the, the republicans in 2016 and they have they okay. no longer have the guardrails to protect them from that uh yeah so in in terms of that that centralization again i just I don't know. Uh, I, I don't okay. know what the uh, uh, what the the connection there is with with geography, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know where where uh, where the presidency is going to go uh, down the road. Um, mm. Maybe we should we should move on to your next question because oh I, yeah 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 I, I don't know the and, answer. You know, like I said, and, and you know, I mean, to go back to the the top of the show, you know, I mean, one of the things that I uh, I recognize fully, you know, sitting here at uh, Ed Song's mic metaphorically speaking and right. songs mike is actually still in california but uh is that you know i am not the progressive that ed is and i'm also not as knowledgeable politically as ed is so i mean i recognize my limitations there but you know what occurs to me is that you know i mean 
the the my own conservative streak would prefer it would prefer a more decentralized politics where i mean you actually have conflict between the midwest and the deep south and where the west coast and the you know the great plains uh actually fight each other for influence in washington right uh i really don't like the picture where someone who can grab the reins as donald trump did of one of the parties can fundamentally redefine our politics that uh, like I said, my conservative streak says that's an incredibly bad way to go. And yeah, and, and that that would not have been possible in in earlier years for for lots of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, well, we've 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 covered Trump pretty extensively on this show. Oh, so, sure, to be sure, to uh, be sure. But I mean, he remains. Well, I mean, he remains a candidate first of all. <laughs> he does. And, and uh, he remains influential. But you're right. I mean, we can shift to another question. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, I'd like to ask before we turn to a, a theological question that I've always wanted to pose to you um, is this, you know, I, I, I guess chaos is, is the best word that I can describe for it, not uh, between the two parties, but within each of the parties, right, where within the Democrat Party, I mean, especially here in the last couple months with the Hamas attack in Israel, I mean, you have definite battle lines. You've got kind of the old Clinton establishment uh, that remains very solidly pro-Israel, and then you've got the squad contingent uh, that, you know, will actually recite uh, Hamas slogans in Congress, or at least in their ads, right? And then on the Republican side, I mean, you know, this is, in my opinion, you know, far more documented. Uh, you've got the Trumpist wing, and then you've got this, you know, dwindling old guard, uh, you know, until Mitt Romney retires, you know, conservative right. wing of the party. Uh, that again, you know, uh, it, it's a lot less up for grabs electorally, but rhetorically, it seems like both of those are still there, right? Well, that, so, that mean, divide. Know, oh, sorry. Say again. I want to say that that divide in in the Republicans doesn't come so much over Israel as it does over the Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I guess the question that I've got for you is: I mean, um, once Donald Trump either becomes, you know, unhealthy enough that he can't run for president anymore, or he becomes interested in something else and he decides he wants to buy Twitter and take yeah. it over or whatever else, right? And he's not interested in the White House anymore. He's interested in something else. I mean, you, you kind of said it already, but I want to hear you expand on it. Um, I mean, are we just waiting for the next, you know, big social media personality to rise up and become the head of each of the major parties? Or, I mean, is there anything in the stew right now that could return us to something at least more decentralized, if not as decentralized as Gilmore would like it? Yeah, I don't. I mean, uh, or or uh, there there are other options. I mean, you could rebuild the the structure of the parties, right? Uh, the, uh-huh. the institutions that that uh, uh, you could have more organized parties, like like as with the European style uh, political parties. I mean, there, uh-huh. there are other possibilities out there. Uh, I don't see any of that happening. Um, that mm-hmm. that requires again that that sort of goes back to the problem of American citizenship. That requires a desire for us to see stable institutions as more valuable than political candidates we agree with. Okay. And I, I don't see that happening. Or even political candidates that we come to agree with. Because, I mean, that, that's yeah. the other part that makes me crazy is that um, I'm, I'm old and I remember stuff. That's the two sides of my cur- curse. <laughs> um, 
but I mean, there are people in my life, you know, with whom I am on a first name basis who have utterly changed their political positions. Oh, sure. Because sure. their party's candidates have changed their positions. Right. And, you know, I mean, for me, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't feel like I've, I've undertaken those radical changes over the last 20 years. That might just because I'm, you know, I'm a more traditional old person who actually is set in my ways. Uh, but, you know, what strikes me is that, you know, I mean, the candidates seem to have this magnetic field to them that can make people who were, you know, tax-cutting conservatives in 2004 uh, suddenly become economic populists. You know, let's uh, have tariffs on imports and get rid of this free trade stuff in 2023. I mean, again, I mean, you know, is that what we are doomed to? Or are there are there machines in the machine, if you will, that, you know, have the power to correct that? Oh, we're we're doomed to that. Sorry, that's okay. uh, <laughs> we're that that and that's that's tied to this polarization stuff, right? It, it's it's yeah. uh, it's not that uh, it's not that you know our 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 friends who uh, friends and family uh, who in the past were free traders and today are are not, uh, and it's because of Donald Trump. Uh, the uh, the the change there is someone came along and said, if you don't do this, the other side will win. Right. right. Okay. The, the so side that, that hates you will win. That David French is yep. always on about. Okay. Keep I mean, rolling, it's keep it's rolling. it's well, it's certainly that. I mean, that's that's yeah. what it is. It's yeah. It's not that these individuals have sat down and really thought through the issues and and looked at kind of both sides and decided, oh, hey, uh, tariffs over free trade. Right. That that has not happened. It's uh, they heard from the front of the room that uh, the the left is going to come and kill you or the right is going to come and kill you, uh, and if gotcha. you if you gotcha. don't vote for me, uh, which. And then eventually you might find out what the policy is. Uh, not that they have real policies, uh, but uh, eventually you might find out what the policy is, uh, and then uh, then then that's what you believe. So right. Well, and that's my third curse coil is that I've got internet access, so I can actually go to the <laughs> uh, you know the congressional documents and actually read the laws and see what they actually say and not what social sure. media tells me that they say. Sure. And uh, you know, I mean. The, the first one that I really remember clearly is uh, Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Yep. I, uh, I saw the social media tizzy, and then I went and actually read the law, and I said, these are not the same entity in the world. <laughs> but it didn't matter because, you know, uh, people wanted to have their tizzy, and boy, did they have it. And Mike Pence still caved on it. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> That was he that was the there. one that was he the one there. thing I knew about him before he was uh, he was nominated for uh, vice president was that he had caved on religious freedom <laughs> over gotcha, over gotcha. over basketball right wasn't no, that the, and, and uh, see it's funny because that was one thing I remember from Pence's years in Indiana of course I grew up in central Indiana so I was sure. following it you know fairly following his career pardon me fairly closely but the other thing I remember is uh, his uh, confrontation I mean you know almost uh, um, oh no, I can't, I can't uh, almost uh, Thomas Beckett, I, I wanted to say Samuel Beckett, but that's the playwright. Uh, <laughs> sure. Thomas Beckett style with the uh, Catholic Archbishop of Indianapolis over Syrian refugees. And basically the yeah. Archbishop of Indianapolis said, our churches are going to house refugees. Thank you. Have a good day, Mr. Pence. <laughs> uh, good for him. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's... I agree. Um, but I, I do want to turn theological, but not on that topic uh we'll talk about that another day if we want to but you know one thing that occurs to me and i mean i got this phrase from uh, my friend in the podcasting world dan coke over at the you have permission podcast but he haven't talks about um one of the big changes in american religious life in the last 
let's say 20 years, that's a round number, is that, you know, it used to be conceivable that someone would reject a political party because their church said, you can't go with that. Now it is far more common for people to reject a church because their political party says you can't go with that. And the metaphor that he uses, and I like this metaphor, is that the positions have shifted so that religion is downstream of partisan affiliation. So, I mean, you know, my suspicion, Coyle, is that that is more true of the very online class than it is of people who just go to work and go to church and, you know, cast a vote every two years and, you know, that's mostly what they think about it. Uh, but, I mean, you know, again, you've actually studied this stuff. I know it's not your specialty, but you've still got more knowledge than I do. So, I mean, you know, to what extent is this a function of, uh, you know, the very performative character of social media life, and to what extent does it characterize broader American religious life? So, I mean, there, there are certainly still churches telling their congregants to reject political parties. Right, I mean that is that is mm. absolutely still happening, uh, both sides, right? Uh, sure, left-wing congregations, right-wing congregations. But do people do uh, that, or do they just switch churches? I don't know. Uh, okay, I, I okay. don't. I don't have that information. Uh, uh -huh. Certainly, people are switching churches. Uh, I mean, that's. I, I know that there is there is information on that. Uh, uh, the the main the mainline churches, of course, are in catastrophic freefall. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, uh, parts of the evangelical world are also declining and parts of it are growing. But I don't know that those data points have been connected with polarization. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe they have. I just, I don't, I don't know. Uh, so I don't know. And I don't have my, I don't have my finger on the pulse of pop culture enough to know what the, what the fallout from that is. Uh, if, if, if Trump were to tell everyone to stop going to, you know, a, I don't know, the, the Methodist church tomorrow, would there be that many well, fewer and, Methodists? And, and and I just... Several years ago, and it actually might have predated Trump's shift from professional wrestling to electoral politics, uh, or I guess reality TV was in between there. Sorry, I forget sure. the reality TV phase. Uh, sure. But, I mean, I feel like Glenn Beck was telling people, if your church mentions the phrase social gospel, leave that church. Yeah, uh, and we'll, we'll leave aside the irony of a, a Mormon giving advice to evangelicals well, on yeah. uh, church attendance. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. What, what's your you're you're in uh you're in sort of the the center of uh, uh the Bible Belt uh, far far more than I am. What's your feel on sure, that? Sure, sure. But I spent uh, or I spent 25 years largely around college students, so yeah. they tend to be the very online class. They tend to be very performative about their religious life. They tend to be. So I mean, I I, I always wondered whether my view of this were distorted, but I definitely saw people, you know. Uh, and this was before deconstruction stopped having anything to do with Jacques Derrida and became, I vote Republican now. Right. Uh, but, I mean, they would say, I can no longer go to my Baptist church. I can no longer go to my, you know, church plant that's functionally Baptist. I can never right. no longer go to this or that church because, and then they would name some element of the DNC platform, right? Right. Uh, so, I mean, I have been around that a lot, but I don't know if that's, mainly a function of being around college students or if that is something that is broader culturally. I mean, I'll also go ahead and mention, I mean, you know, and this was oh, probably three years ago, give or take, but I mean, you know, um, it made a splash again, largely in online circles, but uh, Jamar Tisby of the Pass the Mic podcast, you know, had his Leave Loud movement, right? Yep. Uh, where he was encouraging people not only to depart from evangelical churches because of 
largely partisan concerns, right? But also to announce it online, right? To, you know, make sure that everyone knows this is why you were leaving, right? So, I mean, you know, again, you know, one of the things, um, and, you know, I listened to the the editor's podcast from the National Review Boys, uh, and, you know, one of their refrains is Twitter isn't real. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I... uh, I'm I'm always suspicious of how prevalent it seems, but it seems like, you know, 10 years ago or however long ago it was, you know, I mean, I knew evangelicals who left churches, you know, on Glenn Beck's advice, right? Sure. And I know for a fact that, you know, over the 10 years ensuing, I've known a lot of 21-year-olds, 23-year-olds, so on and so forth, who have left Baptist and Pentecostal churches because of, you know, partisan alignment. So when Dan Koch says that, uh, you know, that religion has moved downstream of partisan affiliation, it seems like that's happening. I've seen it happen, right? What I don't know is, uh, you know, to what extent am I seeing a weird uh, outer rim, you know, kind of thing, and to what extent am I seeing something that characterizes more of the body politic? I mean, what... Do you have an impression of that, or is that not even something that's on your radar? Well, no, and, and some of that is. So I, I certainly, uh, it is not just the young generation. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, I mean, how many people left their churches because of their church's COVID policy, right? Which, whichever oh, the policy yeah, was, yeah. right? Uh, uh, whether it was, you know, we're going to meet and we don't care what the government says, or we're not going to meet and we don't care right. what the government says, right? Right, uh, right. Uh, or, or we're we're going to mask or or whatever, uh, and sure. that. My impression was that wasn't a bunch of 18-year-olds who were in a snit about that. No, you're either right. Way. You're right. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Uh, so, so there, there, there is that, uh, and certainly, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know that Bernie had the same sort of heft with his followers. There, there was some on the Trump side, especially amongst the older crowd, because that's who his his supporters tend to be. Sure, sure. Uh, that that worked its way into churches uh, again. And, and involve leaving or not leaving or so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly pastors are leaving over this. Uh, I mean, we're, we're oh, seeing absolutely. a yeah. Yeah. mass, mass exodus of pastors from their positions uh, right. or from and, being and a minister Curtis altogether. Chang over at the Good Faith Podcast has done a lot of episodes on that dynamic. Yeah, so uh, yes, uh, that, that is happening, I think. But again, I'm it's, it's not something that I follow closely. Uh, my my gut says, and it's a large gut, so I think this means something. But uh, uh, my gut says some of this is going to be tied to uh, a church's membership practices. Uh, uh, some uh-huh. of this is going to be if uh, if a church actually has meaningful membership uh, versus a church is just whoever shows up Sunday morning and uh-huh. they don't they don't actually care, uh, or they, I mean they care like they they right, and that they right. want people not to go to hell, but they 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 don't have any. Uh, any sort of meaningful, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep track of members that we have joined together and we have mutual right. responsibility for, uh, versus, eh, you know, people if people decide to stop coming, we will never know, uh, right. because they show up Sunday morning and then they disappear and they just stop coming mm-hmm. and we don't know. So uh, that probably ties into all of this somehow. Again, there's that institutional side of it that matters, uh, that we are just not trained to think like we're we're not trained to uh, to think, hey. Maybe whether or not I vote in a members meeting affects how likely I am to stay with this church when it does something I disagree right. with. Yeah, that makes good sense. So, I mean, to turn from the prescriptive then, no, from the descriptive to the prescriptive, I reverse that, <laughs> uh, you know, 
what do you think, Coyle? And I mean, you know, I'm not asking for expertise. I'm just, again, asking for your sense of things, right? Uh, you know, I mean, is this something that um, that pastors, I mean, you know, who are not leaving because of it, I mean, you know, should actively pursue as something that they do in their churches? And, and even more than that, I mean, because I think of you and me, I mean, uh, neither of us is ordained, but, you know, I know I teach adult Sunday school in my church. Yep. Uh, you know, I've got some real influence in my local congregation, right? Um, you know, to what extent should people like you and me, uh, you know, actively resist the power of the political parties and their tendency to be upstream? I mean, you know, um, I've made a point of it in at, at least since 2016 of, you know, whenever I fill pulpit for my preacher, whenever I teach Sunday school, if it fits the scripture that I'm actually talking about and, you know, a lot of scriptures talk about, you know, the ultimacy of God and the, you know, God's insistence that there be no other gods before me and, you know, um, not making alliances uh, with entities. And, you know, I'm thinking about Isaiah and First Kings and such, uh, sure. you know, that compromise uh, the ultimacy of God. Uh, I've used those to talk about, you know, I mean, there was a time, uh, you know, when the Bible is being written that those were a little bit easier to spot because they would have been a gold statue in the middle of a temple. But now, I mean, you know, one of the things that I see is that, you know, there are entities in the world. They don't call themselves gods, but they do insist that uh, if you're going to be loyal to me, you have to at least adjust your life with God's community, if not outright leave the people you've been worshiping with. I mean, am I, I, <laughs> I guess here's my, my, my double-edged question here. Uh, am I guilty of both sidesism because I don't like either of the parties seizing people's souls? And then the other side of that is, uh, am I doing politics instead of theology there? Um, no, I mean that that sounds fine, right? Uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly it is not in the text, so I'm not going and, to and, preach and it. I mean, who's not, who's ever going? Not often that Coyle approves of something that I do, so this is important. Keep going. Yeah, well, hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, it's it's not in the text, so I'm not going to preach it. I mean, that uh -huh. that sounds like sort of preaching one on one. And oh, of course, yeah, yeah, you you preach far more than I do because you preach it all. So by definition, you there preach you far more there than I go. do. Um, so so no, I, I think that's I think you're probably on the right track. Uh, I think you're you're unlikely with with certain rare exceptions you are you are unlikely to run into preachers actively saying hey you should you should vote republican i think what you're more or vote democrat or whatever sure, sure. Uh, not, not that that never happens because there's a ton of preachers out there and uh, yeah, yeah yeah it's it's just statistically it's going to happen right and, and uh, i think what you're to go to those churches <laughs> yeah well yeah yeah that's it um uh, you are you are more likely to run into, as, as you said earlier, the negative partisanship, right? The, uh, right, right. hey, we all know that that other party uh, believes X evil thing, right? They're, they're, yep. they're killing babies or they're caging immigrants or, or whatever, right? Whatever sure. it is that they're, they're doing that. So you're, you're more likely to run into that, um, which there, uh, there, I'm sure there are passages of scripture where, taking something like that is a fair interpretation of what you're, what you're preaching. Mm -hmm. um, 
even then I would be very, very hesitant to draw, if I were a preacher, I'd be very hesitant to draw partisan conclusions. Right, uh, right. In in part because we still live in a country where the two parties are legitimate options for believers. Like, you can, yeah, yeah. You can be a Democrat in good conscience and be a faithful, you know, historically Orthodox Christian. Or you can be a Republican right, right. Uh, and in good conscience be a faithful, historically Orthodox Christian. Uh, if if we were living in Nazi Germany or if we were living in the Soviet Union, that that might that would be different, right? There, right, there would be right. parties that we would have to say you you can't do this, but we're not. Uh, contrary to the political rhetoric out there, uh, yeah. we're, we're not. Uh, <laughs> well, so, and I think that's one of the strong differences is that I, when I do get political, when I'm teaching Sunday school or when I'm you know in the midst of a sermon, it's never in a partisan direction. It's usually in an anti-partisan direction. Right. That I mean, you know. Um, can you know? I, I always say, I mean, continue to care about justice, continue to care about protecting the innocent, continue to insist on those things, and making sure that the people you vote for insist on those things. Uh, but realize that if you throw in with one of these parties to the extent that they want you to, you're signing on for a whole bunch of other stuff too. Which which is fine, right? Uh, you, you can you can sign on for other stuff, uh, and that's again that's part of the nuance they get that we lose as our citizenship gets hollowed out. Uh, sure, sure. You can you can vote for someone and not vote for everything they stand for, and and right, disagree right. with them on points. Uh, it is it is harder and harder for us to continue to support someone or be friends with someone or you know maintain relationships with someone that we disagree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the parties are more than willing to take advantage of that. They're, they're more than willing to not believe in anything themselves so that you never disagree with them, but highlight the stuff that you disagree with on the other side. Right, right. Yeah, um, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, the positive uh, becomes very thin as the negative right. thickens. Yeah, the, the positive is Donald Trump, or the positive is... Uh, there was never really Bernie Sanders the personality, right? It was, it was to to his credit, uh, socialism is a kind of policy. Uh, it's it's yeah. it's a terrible policy, but it's a kind of policy. Well, but uh, I mean, it is a, it's a, it's more of a John Lennon fever dream than it is actual socialist policies. Sure. Because I mean, you know, even even Bernie Bros, if you actually propose something that you know would make it harder for them to get the latest iPhone, they're going to balk yeah. at it. Yep. Well, and that's he votes with the Democrats, right? Uh, that's yeah, that's why yeah. there is not a a constant stream of actual legislation coming from his office. Uh, it's he, he votes with the Democrats, and right. Uh, this number might have changed since the last time I saw it, but uh, uh, in his almost three decades in the Senate, I think he's gotten three laws passed, yeah. uh, and uh, and two of them were renaming post offices in Vermont. So <laughs> those numbers might be different now. It's been a couple of years. So maybe I'm being unfair. It might be six. You know, who knows? Right. Uh, but, right. Uh, More post offices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, again, it's I'm I'm going to be against the uh, the politi- politization polarization of the pulpit. Like I, I think that's mm-hmm. a bad sure, impulse. Sure. Uh, you can you can fully and completely affirm the gospel. You can hold to the historic creeds and be in either political party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if your preacher is telling you otherwise, uh, then you might need to find another church. Right. That's, right, that's right. when it's uh, uh, mm-hmm. that's when it gets problematic. Um, there, there are certainly ways you can you can bring politics into the church. I, uh, I'm not a flag in the church sanctuary kind of guy, and no, I'm, I'm not, not a you know, I'm not either Fourth of July service kind of guy. But you know, me neither. We're, we're commanded to pray for the nation, so there 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 is a way to balance all of that. Out. Oh, that I absolutely agree with. Okay, Coyle, we just agreed on three things in a row. Hey, there this we go. Is, this is getting dangerous. We we better stop. We're, we should we should quit here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know. 
you know, just just to kind of add one more point to it, you know, I mean, I, I think that what you're saying is, is right on target. And, you know, I I think I worry more than you do. And I think it's good that I'm, I'm hearing you say this because it might take the edge off of me that, I mean, that the very online class is more representative than it is and that I sometimes treat Twitter as real. Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, you know, when I actually talk to people in the same room, uh, they will say things like, oh, yeah, sure, you can be a Democrat or a Republican and follow Jesus. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's usually in some kind of online space. Uh, that I hear, you know, uh, if you were really a Christian, you would. <laughs> yeah, and and there, you know, there, again, there there may come a point when that's when that's the case, right? There there may come a point when we have to say, yeah, if you vote for that party, uh, we've we've got to discipline you out of the church, right? There yeah. there might come yeah. that moment. Now, how would we ever know? I don't know because secret ballots and all that. But uh, right, uh, there 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 may come such a time, but. This this isn't 1930s Germany. This this isn't 1920s uh, Soviet Union. I mean, we're just we're just not there. Right. So, right. well, Coyle, uh, is there anything else that you want to throw into this little conversation about the realignment uh, of parties, the supremacy of the parties, the pretensions of the parties? I mean, I'll I'll give the uh, the positive note that I give my students. Right. Uh, when when we're thinking about how terrible the parties are. Uh, it's actually a sign that we still live in a free society, uh, in an open republic, because we have a choice. Right. right? Uh, right. Maybe, maybe the choice sucks, uh, and maybe I, you know, if <laughs> if, uh, if tomorrow uh, you told me that some supervillain were holding a single Supreme Court judge randomly chosen in one hand, uh, and the entire apparatus of both the Republican and Democratic Party in another, and he was going to drop one of those off a cliff, I would I would say save the Supreme Court justice without hesitation. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but again, it is it is still a real choice, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, dictatorships, tyrannies don't argue over who should be in control. Uh, that's, right, uh, right. That's something that only a free society does. So, parties are important. Uh, they're they're a sign of the health of the republic, even as they themselves are unhealthy, and are contributing to the lack of health of the republic. They're they're still important. Uh, so, you know, go to your go to your local uh, Republican or Democratic meeting and see what they do. Uh, it's it's like the little local meetings are the ones that people should be going to. Uh, the, yep. I, I watch the national convention online. Uh, I, I follow some of the uh, the politics. Uh, the the uh, the network needs to send us to the the conventions in 2024. I think to report live on the ground. <laughs> um, I, I pitched that to Ed back in 2020. I think I think I pitched it back in 2016, and uh -huh. we were both like, "Well, there's there's no budget, so we can't do it." But oh, uh, well. Man. But now you're on the show. You're you're from the flagship podcast. I expe I expect to get that travel <laughs> that fund. That is now defunct. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's resources available. We can do this. <laughs> yeah, the, the the flagship is on the bottom of the sea right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Coyle, uh, you know, uh, I've never signed off a uh, City of Man podcast. So do you want to do the sign off? Uh, well, we actually don't need to because I have a can side off, sign off uh, that oh, I will uh, awesome. I will just clip in here. Yeah, the the past three years has just been edited in uh, because I'm super lazy. So okay, cool, cool. Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for for uh, for coming on this time. I I had a lot of fun and hope oh, we I can continue too. doing this. So well, and like I said, I mean, I, I wasn't just saying it for the listeners. And if we're still sure. recording, I guess the listeners might still hear it. But I mean, <laughs> uh, I really do look for opportunities to talk with people who actually know stuff about things I'm curious about. So uh, I look forward to to being on this show. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll land something I know about next time, and that'll that'll be a, a better conversation. Uh, so, listeners, let us know. Uh, I'll I'll include the outro here with all of our contact information that I think is still good. 
Um, I don't know. I should probably update. It's four years old at this point. Some of it might be out of date, but uh, right, right. Uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll look into that. Uh, for now, uh, the the email for the podcast stays the same. So, uh, or go to the Facebook page and uh, and and comment there. Uh, and if there's a topic that you want to hear Gilmore and I get into it on, please uh, please let us know that as well. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a-walking that ribbon of highway